0: Now, at our age and stage in life, uh, we have a lot of kids in our home, uh, as you have noticed when we come trailing them all in on Sunday mornings, or rather my wife comes and brings them all in in the morning. And if you are a parent or you're an empty nester or whether you've just ever been around children, you know that life with children is filled with questions like, Dad, why are we going this way and not that way? Like, when did you start driving, right? Like, why are we going this way? No, this way. Dad, can I have ice cream for breakfast? Dad, can I have ice cream for lunch? Dad, I know I just brushed my teeth and I've gotten ready for bed, but can I have ice cream now? No. The answer is no. Life with children is filled with a lot of questions. Perhaps it's even worse for the moms, right? Like, Mom, I need help. Mom, I can't find the thing that I've been looking for for four hours that's right in front of my face. Hey, mom, can you wake up out of the dead of a sleep and help me find this thing that I don't need for another two days? Like life with kids is filled with questions. However, often life with adults is filled with questions too. But when adults ask questions, often we're attempting to say something with our questions, aren't we? Like a good lawyer who will ask a question of a person on a trial to give proof in their answer, or a lack of an answer to support the person asking the question. In our text today, we're going to see Paul do this exact same thing, asking five questions to the believers of Jesus Christ that essentially all have the same answer. No one. Last week when we looked at Romans 8, 28-30, we discovered that God is sovereign in our suffering and in our salvation. And that is, sovereignty in all things gives us a great confidence that all things are working together for good. And this week we'll finish Romans chapter 8 finally. And we'll be in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39, discovering that God is for us. In fact, our big idea today is this. God is for us and so no one can be against us. So if you have your Bibles, take them out and turn to Romans chapter 8, and we'll be, we'll finish the uh, chapter 8 in the book of Romans today. If you didn't bring a Bible today, that's okay. We should have one in the seat in the front of you that you can use, and you can find our text today on page 888. With that being said, let's read Romans chapter 8, verse 31 now. It says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, Who can be against us? Paul begins in verse 31 saying, What shall we say to these things? Well, what are these things that Paul is talking about in this verse? Well, in verses 31 through 39, Paul is reflecting back on everything that he's already said in Romans chapter 1 through 8. It's almost like his finality statement for Romans 1 through 8. And I mean, we've covered a lot in our text Uh, from Romans one to eight, and we've been in the text since January. So there's no way that we can summarize all of the things that we've talked about. But Paul says, what do we do about these things that we've seen in Romans one through eight? Well, to summarize all that has been said, Paul begins walking through five rhetorical questions to drive home his message about the hope that we have as believers of Jesus Christ. So Paul asks his first question in the second half of verse 31. He asked the question, if God is for us, then who can be against us? And Paul's basically saying here, no one is against us. No one can be against us. And you may say, hold on a second, Jonathan. I've been on social media lately. I've seen the news headlines. And Jonathan, there are a lot of people against Christians. And yes, many may oppose us. But Paul's point here is that for children of God, God is for us. And yes, in this life, there is pain and there's hardship and there are those who oppose us. But we can have a great confidence that God is for us. However, we also need to remember that this is a promise for believers of Jesus Christ only. See, the reality is many will hear these words. Depart from me for I never knew you. So while this may be reassuring for us as believers of Jesus Christ as children of God, it's also an incredibly frightening reality for for many that God is against them. And that's incredibly frightening. Many have heard this throughout history. So for us in Christ, we need to find comfort in this truth that God is for us. And we need to declare to others that God can be for them too if they would but yet submit to him and follow him and believe in him and confess their sin. If they would follow out the reality of Romans 10, 13. Hey, Christians, God is for us. He's foreknown us. He's predestined us. He's called us. He's justified us. He's going to glorify us. He is sustaining us. And he is for us. Paul then continues in verse 32, and he says this. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So Paul asks this next question in verse 32. Will God not graciously give us all things? And you may say, well, Jonathan, that King Ranch F-150 that I strongly desire is not sitting in my driveway, so how can this be true? Well let's not let's be sure not to miss what Paul is saying here and confuse it with a health wealth and a prosperity mistruth that has been spread from this verse but let's understand what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that God will supply all of our needs and he reassures us to pointing to the cross where God gave up his only son to meet our ultimate need which is the forgiveness of our sins and to be be, be back in a right relationship with God. And this is even pointing back to verse 31. We know that God is for us and we can be sure of it because of the cross of Jesus Christ. See, God spared his own son to meet our ultimate need, which is him. And in a way, Paul is working from a greater to a lesser in this verse. See, God has done the hard thing. The ultimate act of love, giving his son for us so we can rest assured that he also will do the lesser thing, which is he will give us everything we need to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ like we saw last week. Tony Merida put it like this. He said, God does not redeem us to leave us, but he redeems us to conform us. Tony Merida also gave a great illustration like this. He said, imagine this just as an example. And this is just an example so Coleman kids don't get excited. Like, Imagine if I was to take my kids to Disney World and like a spare no expense. And we get the first class airfare and we get the super nice hotel and we rent the luxury minivan to get us there. And then we pull up and there's a sign that says $75 for parking. And then I look at my wife and I say, $75 for parking? Like that's insane. And it is. But I say, that's where we draw the line, like we're going home now. Well, my wife would look at me and she'd say, heck no, like we've come this far, we're doing this. We've already paid for the airfare, we've already paid for the car rental, we've already paid for the hotel, the tickets, we're going to pay $75 to park. And that's what Paul is essentially saying in this passage. God has already made the big purchase at the cross, and he's going to take care of the ongoing work of our salvation. He's going to give us glory, and we can rest in that. See, the cross assures us of the ongoing, unfailing, and everlasting love of God for his children. Hey, Christian, God is for us. And God will continue to graciously give us all things that are working us out to become more like him. Paul continues in verse 33 with another question. He says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So we can imagine this question that Paul has here as being in a court of law. And Paul's argument is that no prosecution can succeed since God, our judge, has already justified us. We can never be condemned since Jesus Christ died for our sins and advocates for us. He was raised from the dead and he's seated at the right hand of God actively and interceding on our behalf. In other words, God is in the highest court. And if God Almighty has already declared not guilty over us, then we are not guilty. Christian, that's good news. Because if you are in Jesus Christ, you are justified regardless of who accuses you. And this is a great comfort for us, particularly today, because in our world, many will try to accuse us of many things. Like simply reading the Bible in our culture today, or simply seeking to follow the Bible, is oftentimes viewed as hate speech in our days. And I'm just going to be real frank right now. Hey, When I was in seminary, I graduated in 2012, and the president at that time, he looked at us when he graduated, and he said, hey, men, the day is coming whether you will have to choose whether you, whether you will preach the whole counsel of God's word and be arrested, or if you will back down from preaching God's true word. And when I heard this in 2012, I thought to myself, well, maybe that day is coming for my grandchildren, or maybe that day is coming for my children, but certainly that day is not coming for me. But then just three years later in 2015, homosexual marriage was mandated legal and the law of the land in all 50 states. And then we saw just a few years later in Houston, the mayor began demanding pastors to turn over their sermon manuscripts. And, And the mayor didn't succeed in this, but it always begins with a push like that. And now we see in Canada pastors being arrested for protesting things that children should never be at and should never take a part of. And even now we see the culture is so against the truth of God's word that it, and has become so violent and so rampant and so and it has become so supported that Christians are becoming to become fearful of being canceled or attacked on social media or in real life. See, our culture has changed radically. However, hear me, God's word has not changed. And as long as I preach, I will stand upon the truth of God's word. And Mission Dorado, as long as I am here, we will always stand upon the truth of God's word. See, God loves sinners like you and I. And if God is for us, who can be against us? So Christian, yes, people may come after us if we stand upon the truth of God's word and declare that it's the only way to heaven. Like we saw in our Philippians study this morning, Paul was writing from jail. They may come after us if we say that God's word outlines his perfect plan, which is one man and one woman for life, and that God calls for us to not be enslaved to our sin, but to be enslaved to him. But here is the good news. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Let's hold fast to that promise. Hey, Christian, God is for us. God will continue to graciously give us all things that are working us towards becoming more like Jesus. And Christian, if God has justified us, then who can bring any charge against us? Paul then continues with a similar question in verse 34. It says this. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. And more than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Paul's next question is really similar. Not only who can bring any charge against us, but who will condemn us? So Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God, and he's interceding for us in this moment. Think about that. Romans 8, 26 tells us that the Spirit is helping us in our weaknesses. Like when we don't even know what to pray, The Spirit is helping us in our weakness. And then Romans 8.34 tells us that Jesus Christ is interceding for us. That means he's going before us to God on our behalf. So with that kind of stacked odds, who can condemn us? Nobody. That's who. However, many may try to condemn us. And if we're being honest, the chief condemner of us is often who? Ourselves. What do I mean by that? Well, 1 John three twenty says, For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. See, oftentimes it's our own selves that try to condemn us, isn't it? We sang a song just a moment ago that I just love the second verse of it when we sang before the throne of God above. And there's a line in there, it says, When Satan tempts me to despair, upward I look and see him who forgave me of my sins. I just botched that line, but you know what I'm saying, right? Like when Satan tempts me to despair. Like upward and I look and I see him there. Oftentimes if I'm being honest, I'm tempted to despair. To lose hope. Because I'm like, man, if these people only knew who I really was, they would know that I'm a sinner. And God can't really love me because I'm a sinner. Hey Christian, maybe you have those same thoughts. And hear me. God does know who you are. God knows the deepest and the darkest depths of your heart. And you know what? While you were still a sinner, God sent his only son to die for you, and he loves you. See, the truth is far too often our worst enemy is not the person that's coming to attack us because of our beliefs or the stand that we've taken. But our own worst enemy often is ourselves and not believing the truth of Romans 8.1 that says, therefore in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. Christians, who is there to condemn? No one, not the enemy and certainly not ourselves. Hey, Christ didn't come to sink you and to save you, to sink you, but Christ came to save you, to free you. So be free from the condemnation that you place upon yourselves. Now, we have a lot of kids in our home, like I said earlier, and I love them deeply. And I know they're not perfect. You know they're not perfect. We all know they're not perfect. And I don't expect them to be. But also, I do what? I call them my children, like I claim them. And I'm saying they're mine. And not only that they have my DNA, but also that they have my last name. I'm claiming them. And no matter what they may do or what they may say or how much I may disagree with what they're doing, they are still my child. Hey, Christian, God knew you were a wretch. God knew you were a worm. But he sent his only son to die for you and he calls you what? Calls you his child. So be assured there is no one who can condemn us, even ourselves, because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And even further, Jesus Christ is sitting at the right hand of God, interceding on your behalf. Robert Murray Mache said this about this verse. He said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Hey, Christian, God is for us. God will continue to graciously give us everything that's working us to becoming more like Jesus. Hey, Christian, if God has justified us, then who can bring any charge against us? And Christian, if Jesus is now sitting at the right hand of God, interceding on your behalf, then who can bring any condemnation for us? Let's continue reading in verse 35 through 39. As this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of Jesus of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul now asks this final question that we'll finish our time out with today. He says, who can separate us from the love of God? And then he spends five verses like detailing that and working that out. Why didn't he just say nobody and say, okay, let's move on to chapter 9? Because Paul really wants us to know as believers of Jesus Christ and to have confidence that there is nothing that can separate us from God's love. So let's break this down. First part of verse 35, Paul begins with the question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Paul says who, but in this language we can also stand that who also means what? So who or what can separate us from the love of Christ? And we know that the circumstances of life can cause us to question like, how is God using this for good? But Paul's question here is, can the circumstances of our lives cause a believer to send themselves out of salvation? So Paul walks through this list of seven possibilities of things we might think could separate us from Christ. He says, well, what about tribulation? This word literally means suffering or trouble or persecution or opposition, and it carries this meaning of being squeezed or placed under pressure. It's like that refining gold image that we get from 1 Peter one, I think five. And the idea that Paul is talking about is the severe adversity that's common to all believers of Jesus Christ. And Paul says here, says here, for the believer of Jesus Christ, no tribulation can separate us from the love of God. What about distress? This is the idea of being hopelessly confined in all situations, in difficult situations. Maybe you feel like you can't get away from them. And sometimes, as believers, we find ourselves caught in situations where we feel trapped or in distress. But Paul says, For the believer of Jesus Christ, there is no distress that can separate us from the love of God. What about persecution? This is affliction or harm or harassment that comes to us who because we follow Jesus Christ. I remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 5 in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5:10 through 12. Jesus says, "Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you, falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad because your reward is great in heaven. Hey, for many on this earth, physical harm will come to them and their family members for following Jesus Christ. However, for us in the United States, at least for now, while we may not face physical harm, we may very well face Harassment. We may not get the promotions we should or not being welcomed in places because of our profession that Jesus Christ is Lord and that his word is supreme. However, Paul says, for the believer of Jesus Christ, hold fast to this. There is no persecution that can separate us from the love of Christ. Paul continues, what about famine? We have this saying in our culture, I'm famished, but we really have no idea what this means. This literally means having no food. And oftentimes this would come to a Christian because of persecution, because they couldn't work, because they couldn't get a job, or either because they were jailed and they were starved to death. And while this sounds awful, we have a great confidence that our hope is not in this world or in its nutrients, but our hope is in heaven with God forever. Paul says for the believer of Jesus Christ, there is no famine that can separate us from the love of Christ. What about nakedness? Well, this is when a person, possibly due to persecution, can no longer clothe themselves properly. And there's a great shame in that, a great loss of dignity. But what Paul is saying here is hey, even if you're persecuted, you're hungry, and you don't have proper clothes to wear for the sake of the gospel, we still can have a great confidence in Christ that for the believer of Jesus Christ, not even having proper clothes can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. What about danger? Well, for the Christian who faces persecution and lack of food and lack of clothes, surely danger's close by. However, Paul says, for the believer of Jesus Christ, not even the most dangerous situation imaginable can separate us from the love of Christ. Well, what about the sword? This simply means a weapon used to put someone to death, to take their life here on this earth. Paul's literally saying, even if the gospel were to cost you your life, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And remember Paul's not just talking about what may be's here. He's speaking of things he has experienced. He's faced all of these things and more and death by the sword was a reality for him. And Christians, we should not be we should never be surprised when we're mocked or we're persecuted or we're ridiculed or even have death threats because of our faith. This has been a reality for believers of Jesus Christ for centuries and centuries. The cost of faithfulness to God has always been high. In fact, right now, in this moment, many of our brothers and sisters in Christ are meeting, breaking the law with their lives on the line and with their families' lives on the line. And they're gathering to praise and glorify God, many knowing that death may not be far away. But the reality is this, just like we said a few weeks ago, our life on earth is short and eternity is forever Hey, for the Christian, persecution is to be expected. Like, it is the norm. I don't know if you'll hear that from many pulpits today, but suffering is the norm for Christians. Suffering is the norm for people who follow Jesus Christ. But for the believer of Jesus Christ, not even being killed can separate us from the love of Christ. In fact, Paul drives this point home in verse 36 by quoting Psalm forty-four twenty-two. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul's point is what I just said. Suffering is a normal part of the Christian life. It is to be expected. However, for the believer of Jesus Christ, no amount of suffering can separate us from the love of Christ. So in verse 35, Paul asks this question, and he could have just given us a simple answer, but he just keeps going on and going on. And then in verse 37, Paul answers it finally, directly and clearly. He says, nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. In fact, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. Hey, notice what Paul doesn't say. Paul doesn't say, hey, God's going to take all of these things away. God doesn't say that Christians will never go through these things. But Paul says, in all of these things, in distress and persecution, famine, nakedness, danger and death, we are more than conquerors. That's a strange phrase, isn't it? Like, what does Paul mean by that? Well, Thomas Schreiner said, to be more than a conqueror in all situations means that these enemies are actually turned to the good of the believer through the power of God. So basically what we saw last week, that God is using all things for our good and for his glory to make us more like Jesus Christ. So not only can we endure these sufferings, but we can also know that in the middle of these sufferings, that God is using them for our good and for his glory. Paul's ultimate point in verses 35 to 37 is this. Hey, Christian, don't let your sufferings or trials deceive you. You have not been separated from Christ's love. In fact, God is for you. Paul continues in verses 38 through 39. We already read that, but let's read it again. Verse 38 through 39. It says this, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul closes Romans chapter 8 with this beautiful summary. He began in verse 1 of Romans 8 saying there's no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. Then in verse 12 he told us that we are heirs with Christ who have received the Holy Spirit as evidence of our adoptions as sons and daughters with the ability to cry out Abba and Father to God. Then in verse 18, we saw that our suffering is nothing worth comparing to the glory that is waiting for us in heaven. And then in verse 26, we saw that we know that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Then in verse 28, we saw that we know that for those who love God, all things are working together for good. And now in verse 38, we see Paul say strongly, I'm sure of this. I'm convinced of this. This language means that I have become and I remain convinced of this. So we can understand that this is an unsettled and an unmovable conviction that Paul has. In the second half of verse 38 and at the beginning of verse 39, Paul gives us a list of things that he is settled and sure that will never be able to separate us from the love of God. Paul says first, hey, I'm convinced that neither death nor life will be able to separate us from the amazing love of God of God in Christ Jesus. Paul then says, Neither angels nor demons will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then Paul says, Neither things present nor in the future, or powers, or things on earth, or space, will be able to separate us from the love of of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And, and this seems to be summarizing everything that we are experiencing and we will experience. So Paul's basically saying nothing horizontally in time or vertically in time and space can separate us from the love of God. And then finally, Paul's like, hey, just in case I missed anything, like just in case like you think there's a loophole and like I left something out, he says, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus Paul's basically saying, hey, our salvation is so secure in Christ that it is secure from eternity past and it will be secure throughout all of eternity. Hey, Christian, this is a great passage. Who can be against us? No one. Who will bring any charge against us? No one. Who can condemn us? No one. Who can separate us from God's love? No one. Christian, what can separate us from God's love? Nothing. Not one thing. God's word today has really encouraged me, and I hope it has you as well. God is for us, and that makes a difference in everything. Today I just have a few applications I want to run through really quickly. And The first is this. This text should cause us to rejoice and to praise God. I don't know if you've ever been to a sports game where there's a chant going on, but I was reminded as I was reading this week, uh, the New Orleans saints have this chant that they have going on i know caleb you know about it and it's who dat, who dat, who dat. say they're going to beat them saints right and they start chanting over and over and over well in this text it's almost like paul is saying that in this section of romans like who is going to defeat god's children no one not one person so today let this truth lead you to praise god to enjoy him to worship him Also, in a similar way, oftentimes we're tempted to despair like we talked about earlier and like we sang earlier. Today, if you find yourself in a place of despair, won't you allow this truth from God's word to allow you to be lifted out of despair? This is an encouraging text. Kent Hughes shared a story about a man who loved Romans 8.31 so much that when his pastor read Romans 8.31, that says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? The man shouted out, read those words again, pastor. I don't know if I'd like to have somebody like that in my congregation, or I may already have somebody like that in my (laughs) congregation. I I don't know. Uh, But I, I thought that was great, that we can let this text today cause us to proclaim within our hearts, read it again. Because in every season, even seasons of despair, this text should cause us to rejoice and to praise God. Yeah. Second application is this this text should bring us great unity amidst our diversity, right? And we say this often that we're not a church that's united by our race or our language or our social economic status or our country of origin or even our preferences. But we are a church that is united solely upon our confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that means that in the upside down kingdom of Jesus Christ, there is unity amidst our diversity. But this text gives a lot of meat on the bones to what we just say that, right? Like notice it doesn't say, if God is for me then who can be against me? Now, what does it say? If God is for us, then who can be against us? Christian, we are in this together. So let's encourage one another with the truths of this text. Paul was writing to a diverse church of Jews and Gentiles. Today, we are also a diverse people in many ways. However, we're also a unified people because we all have a common Father, and we're all brothers and sisters in Christ bought with the same blood of Jesus Christ and we share the same character DNA. Hey, Christian brother and sister, we are family and God is for us. No one can be against us. However, oftentimes, what's the case? In the church, we spend a lot of time being against one another, don't we? And this ought not be so. Hey, we may have our differences. We may not even like one another. But remember, it doesn't say God is for me and not him or her. But it says God is for us. Let's find commonality in our faith in our Father. See, our brother and sister in Christ is never the enemy. They are our family. Maybe today, some of us just need to drop the pride of I'm right and they're wrong. And we need to forgive a brother or sister in Christ. Or maybe today for some of us, we need to see the bigger picture of not winning the argument before us. And we need to see the bigger calling that heaven is coming and we're going to be with these people forever. So we better get on with loving one another, right? Right. This text shows us that there is a commonality of our faith. And that brings us a great unity amidst our diversity. So brothers and sisters in Christ, let's choose to be unified because of the truth of this great text. Last application is this. This text should excite us and give us the confidence to tell others about God. For all of us, we're called and commissioned to share the good news of Jesus Christ, where we've been placed and where we've been planted. And like we said earlier, we've been planted in a place filled with lost people, and so we are to share the good news of Jesus Christ. However, for some of us, possibly God is calling you to a specific calling. For a long time, I've been seeing trends all throughout the country in churches that there's fewer and fewer men who are surrendering to the gospel ministry. Uh, our seminaries and our Bible colleges have been seeing record lows in those who are going into the ministry. And now the trends are just now catching up with the reality and the pews to the point of where I saw a report this week on a church research website that said a typical pastor today is approaching retirement age. And frankly, there are not enough younger pastors to replace a large group of retiring pastors. You know this. You've seen this in the churches. And we're seeing this reality in America now. We have a great pastor crisis of having a shortage of pastors. And churches who are searching for pastors currently simply cannot find anyone. So why do I tell you this? Because as a church, we're blessed to have a few men who are exploring a call to ministry And church, you're investing in them and giving them opportunities to preach and to grow until the day comes out where we send them to go pastor somewhere. But also today, I wonder if there might be someone else here who might be feeling God calling them to pastor. You may say, well, yes, Jonathan, I felt that call, but I have a good job. Like, I already have a career already. Like, I'm already, my roots are already here. Well, one of the greatest needs of churches presently and increasingly Will be that of a pastor who has a full time career job and can pastor a church vocationally. Hey, today, brothers, might God be calling you to pastor a local church? If so, don't harden your hearts, don't delay, and submit to Him. Hey, maybe you're not even sure completely. You're like, I'm wrestling with the call, but I don't know, like, if if this is real. Would you come see me? We can pray through this. We can talk through this. I'll pray with you as you explore this. Our church will help you explore if this may be something that God is calling you to. And if so, we will come alongside of you to equip you and to help mature you in this way if this is something that God is calling you to. But not all are called to pastor. Maybe for some of you, God is maybe calling you to the mission field, somewhere that doesn't have much of a gospel witness and to share your faith there. Or maybe simply for some of you, God may be calling you to stay here, but to step up in serving him in your local church and in the community. God has not given us to the church to be passive existers, but he's given us to the church to be good gifts who are active participants and leading in the life of the church. The text that we looked at today should excite us, and it should give us the confidence to tell others about Jesus Christ. And for all of us, that should be with our neighbors and our co-workers and our family and our friends. For all of us, this must be serving the local church. But for some of us, that may be surrendering to the gospel ministry to be a pastor or a missionary. Hey, today, I'm simply calling out the called. Today, if God is calling you, don't harden your heart and don't say no. But would you submit and surrender and following and follow him? Hey, Christian. Who can be against us? No one. Who can bring any charge against us? No one. Who can condemn us? No one. Who can separate us from God's love? No one. I hope that has been encouraging to you today. God, Our big idea for today is this. God is for us, so no one can be against us. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Hey believer, the altar is open. Maybe today you need to just come before God and just beg that he would give you a soft heart. To give you a heart like his. That you find confidence in his word today. Hey, maybe today you recognize that there's not unity in your heart. And maybe today you need to come to this altar and ask that God would break your heart. To care well for and to love other believers of Jesus Christ. Or maybe that he would break your pride and he would bring unity to your heart with other believers of Jesus Christ. Maybe today God's calling you to the gospel ministry, to pastor, to be a missionary, to be a minister, and to serve the local church or to serve the local church in a greater capacity. I don't know how God is working in your life, but I do know that God hears your prayers. In our lives, there are often that are often filled with busyness. This is a moment where you can be still before the Lord and cry out to Him. Let's not waste this time. And maybe you're here today, and like you've never placed your hope and your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. There's a 100% chance that you will not be alive on this earth forever. Currently on this earth, you live in a place that God is present. He's given us this common grace of breath and enjoying his creation. But what happens to you when you die? Well, when you die, you either spend eternity fully with God or fully separated from him. And those who do not trust Christ in this life will be separated from him forever in a real place called hell in the next life separated from his common grace in a place described of unquenchable fire and torture. Why would a loving God do this? God is holy. That means he's perfect and he's never done anything wrong, nor can he do anything wrong. Yet all of us have sinned. We've all done something against God's law. And this creates a problem because we're separated from God for all of eternity. No matter how good we may think we are or how positive we are about our truth, the truth is you cannot be in the presence of God because you are a sinner and he cannot be associated with sin because of his character. But there is good news. God loves you so much that he made a way that you can be with him for all of eternity in a real place called heaven through his son, Jesus Christ. So Jesus came to earth as a baby and lived a perfect sinless life on this earth, being fully God and fully man, but then went to the cross and died for your sins. And then three days later, he defeated sin and death when he rose from the grave. So that if you today believe in him, confess and repent of your sins, that means turning from your sins and follow him, then you will be saved and you'll be back in a relationship with him. And yes, when you pass away from uh, your time here on earth, you will be in heaven with him forever. Today, if you've never done that, I just want to call you to respond. If you know you don't have a relationship with God this morning, don't delay, don't wait till tomorrow. But would you respond today? Have you done this? In a moment when we sing a song, that's a moment that you can come down front and I can help you walk through this. Hey, believers, in this few moments that we have, the altar is open if you need to come before the Lord and bow before him. Don't waste these moments. Church, I love you so much. Let's pray.